Good morning. Just a couple of announcements. Life Talk Radio has given us an opportunity to have a radio program, um, Simple Solutions with Dr. Tim Jennings, starting Tuesday, February 17th. Uh, it's going to be 11 a.m. to 12 noon live. It's a live call-in program and broadcast over the, the radio network. There's a nominal production cost associated of $150 a show. And the uh, Collegeville Church has allowed our Sabso class to contribute towards that production cost. If anybody would be interested to do that, you just make a donation and write, um, you know, for the uh, radio program. And that would be a tax-deductible donation if you decided you wanted to do that. But let people know about the show. There's 70 stations across the U.S. and 12 outside the U.S. We're hoping that uh, there will be an opportunity to take this message further. You can listen to it live online at the Life Talk website. All right, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study today. We ask that you would send your spirit to enlighten our minds, send your angels to worship with us this morning. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly, The Prophetic Gift. And the title for this week's lesson is The Authority of the Prophets. The Authority of the Prophets. If somebody would read the memory text for us, please. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Test all things, hold fast to what is good. What do you think this means? Are we to accept what prophets say? Or do we test what prophets say? Now, we've talked in the past about testing the prophets by Scripture. You know, taking what they say, comparing it with Scripture, and testing it against the Scripture to see if that's... Are there other tests besides comparing with Scripture? Maybe even more basic than testing against Scripture. How about simply... If it comes true. I mean, can you test what a prophet says by whether it actually comes true? In my lifetime, there have been people making predictions about the uh, invasion of Israel, about Russia, China, and all these types of things. Certain dates were set. If you remember the 70s with the late great planet Earth and the whole predictions that were in that book and so forth. There have been predictions about certain economic collapses and, and these types of things. Um, the return of Christ has been set... Throughout my, my lifetime, multiple dates have been set. Have you all seen that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and when these predictions or prophecies come by certain people, how do we test them? Wait and see. Say that louder. Wait and see. Wait and see. <laughs> okay. okay, the Lord is coming on March 31st. Okay, how do we know whether that's true or not? Well, March 31 will tell us, won't it? Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, that's the way you tell whether that's true or not. We, we, we watch and see. Yes? One of the latest predictions that I've heard, uh, November 25, we're going to have martial law. Yes. Last, last year. <laughs> yeah, there was a prophecy going around on the Internet last year that George Bush was going to put in. Actually, it was going to be martial law before the election so that the election wouldn't take place and he could stay in power. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we found out that wasn't true. Yeah. Um, here's one written in 1897 in the book Fundamentals of Christian Education. See what you think about this, uh, if you want to consider it a prophecy or a prediction of sorts. It says, and by the way, any students in the room, you want to pay really attention to this one. Intemperance in study is a species of intoxication. And those who indulge in it, like the drunkard, wander from safe paths and stumble and fall into the darkness. 
The Lord would have every student bear in mind that the eye must be kept single to the glory of God. They are not to exhaust and waste their physical and mental powers in seeking to acquire all possible knowledge of the sciences, but in but every individual is to preserve the freshness and vigor of all his powers to engage in the work which the Lord has appointed him in helping souls find the path of righteousness. Intemperance in study, a species of intoxication, in those who indulge in it, like the drunkard. How do you like that? You study too much, you're like the drunkard. What do you think about that? This is a kind of a prophecy of sorts, isn't it? A prediction? Any any ideas, thoughts, comments about that? Makes good sense. I wish somebody had told me that when I was in school. <laughs> I can tell you, when I was going to school over here, I never got this. It was always study more, study more, study more. <laughs> Anybody remember that, Russell? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is out of the American. This is out of the American Journal of Epidemiology, published January two thousand nine. Middle-aged workers who consistently work overtime appear to be at risk for mild cognitive impairment, research has shown. In a prospective study of middle-aged British civil servants, those who typically work more than 55 hours a week score worse on vocabulary tests and show greater decline in reasoning ability than their colleagues who work 35 to 40 hours a week. Mild cognitive impairment is a predictor of later dementia and mortality, meaning death. And... Workers uh, who work more than 55 hours a week or working more than 55 hours a week was associated with worse baseline and follow-up performance on vocabulary testing with a decline in performance on the reasoning test over a five-year period. Exhausting the mental energies damages the neurons. Exhaust the brain leads to, well, it was 1897, the first one, 1897 that I read you, and now we have uh, 2009 data that supports that prediction. So I guess we should do all things in moderation and balance our mental exercise and our physical exercise to keep the, the, the being healthy. Any thoughts about that? We were talking about testing the prophets and the prophecies. I received this from one of our online listeners in the last night in response to this quarterly's lesson. And uh, he, he emailed me this, and these were his thoughts about something. And I want to get your thoughts about it, particularly about our, our church and our perspective. And it says, our message is not that our prophet is better than yours. Our message should be that our God loves you just like you are. If we continue on this detour of naming the true prophet, we will soon be stuck in an eddy with no way out. Mary Baker Eddy, Joseph Smith, the Fullers, Amenhotep, Ellen White, David Koresh, Jim Jones, and Moses should all be judged by the same standard. Do they point you to the Savior or to themselves? Does one, after being exposed to them, know God better? That is the only valid test. If we would spend more time reading Ellen White than trying to defend her, our church would be a less caustic environment for tender growing Christians. But we shouldn't just read Ellen. She herself was well read. For our own growth, we need to see God from a multitude of perspectives. Why? To discern the truth for ourselves. I am not suggesting that truth and falsehood are not important. They certainly are. But it is the work of the Spirit in your heart. It is the work of the eternal for eternity. Our work is to make choices that make our hearts a place where the Spirit likes to hang out. 
if God is actually in your heart, don't you think when you read or hear something that is that its correctness will be decided together, God and I deciding its value makes much more sense to me. Thoughts about that? So one of our online listeners sent that to me last night. I think that makes sense. Do you like the, the idea that one of the tests of a prophet is do they point you to God? After hearing or reading what they have to say, that you've come to know God better. Do you like that as a test? You know, that test didn't come up so, so many times in the quarterly that, yet this far, did it? I like it too. That's why I shared it with you. All right, somebody read the first paragraph for us in the Sabbath lesson there. All through the Bible, a theme recurs. God talks to people through his prophets, and the people either accept or reject what's being said. Of course, by rejecting the words of the prophets, they're not rejecting the prophets. They're rejecting the one who sent them. And then it goes on to talk about the very serious thing when one claims to speak in the name of God. If you claim to speak for him, then you are a mouthpiece for the creator of the universe. This is no small responsibility. And as we, as we look at those, those ideas, my question to you is, have you ever been called to speak for God? Every day. Have you ever been God's mouthpiece? Have you ever thought of yourself like that? How about... Now brace yourselves. Are parents called to be God's mouthpiece to their children? Yes. And I'm not going to ask parents what you've said to your children. I'm going to ask each of you, what message did you hear coming from your parents about God? When you were a child and your parents spoke to you, what was the message that you heard coming from God? I said I can tell you the message I got wasn't from God. The message you got wasn't from God. Does the message you get from your parents, if it's not a message that's consistent with what God has, does it make it harder for you to see God? Yes. It does, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And I think each of us in our own ways have had those obstacles to overcome in our journey, haven't we? Some of us more so than others. But I think it's an important thing to realize as we speak. I know, Lori, what you meant, that you meant that everywhere we go and witness in life, we're, we're representing Christ, we're representing God. Is there a special, though, authority that a parent has over a child? Yes. You know, when children are little, they actually look to their parents with with investing them with divine attributes. I don't know if you remember doing this or not when you were a small child, but there was a time when your parent was omnipotent to you. They could do no wrong. Everything they said was right. And, and there's a reason for that. As a small child, age three, four, five, we invest our parents with this omniscient quality because they can take care of all the problems of the universe and we don't have to be afraid. It, it insulates us from fear and worry and anxiety if our parents have all power and authority. But I will say that my attitude of what I, what my parents taught me when I was young, compared to now with maturity and having children of my own, has certainly changed. Before I had kids of my own, I maybe would have questioned different things that my parents did. But after being more mature and having my own children, then I understand a little more clearly what they presented to me. And isn't that what we're supposed to do as Christians? Exactly. Are we supposed to accept what we're told? Are we, as we develop maturity, evaluate what we've been taught and told, hold to that which is good, and let go of that stuff which wasn't perfect? Yeah. Sunday's lesson. Somebody read first paragraph for us. The 
According to the arrangement God put in place, Moses was literally to become God to Aaron, and Aaron was to become Moses' mouthpiece or prophet. This defines accurately the intimate relationship between God and all his prophets. They were his mouthpieces, his spokespersons. Furthermore, as in the case of Moses and Aaron, God taught all his prophets what they were to, the, to being a mouthpiece. Moses was, however, somewhat of a real prophet. So what do you think about this idea of Moses becoming God to Aaron? Have you ever thought about that before? No. no any- God spoke through Moses to give the message to Aaron. And in that way, he was representing well, God. That wasn't God's first choice. God's first choice was to speak to Moses, and Moses was to speak to everyone else. That's true. God, Moses was going to go be this, this mouthpiece, and Moses wanted some help, so he allowed this to happen. Right. Um, as, as you think about the, the children of Israel... In the Old Testament, this whole thing that's set up through Moses, the whole sanctuary service, the whole deal. Um, how do you understand that? What, what construct do you put that in? Do you put that in a literal, this is a literally the way the universe works? Or is this a teaching tool to help open darkened minds to a greater reality? It's a teaching tool. Thoughts about that? Because, you know, we, we still take this very literal. We take this teaching tool and we construct a building in heaven based on this building on earth in our minds. Do we not? It was like the old sandbox they used to have for little children at Sabbath school. Something that they could understand. She said it's like a sandbox in, in cradle roll uh, that the children would then have these little figures to act out to help teach lessons. That this, that's, what, that's what this was about. Um, what parts were they to play? See, my, my way of viewing this is this was a acting troop. The children of Israel became an acting troop, and there was a play that they were to enact, and there was a script, and there was a director, and the director was God himself, and the script was given to Moses, and each person had an assigned role to play in the, in the, in the play, and there was this really cool stage with all these neat costumes that everyone had to wear to put on this, this, this play. And when we, when we look at it that way, suddenly a lot of things come into focus. Do you remember in the Bible where it talks about uh, the high priest would only enter the most holy place once a year. Only the high priest, and only once a year. No one else could, right? Yes. But, but we find that Moses, regularly, after Aaron was the high priest, would go into the sanctuary and talk to God face to face. Isn't that true? Yes. Aaron's now in, instilled as the high priest. Moses is not the high priest. But only the, whole, only, only the high priest can go in once a year, see God face to face. But Moses is going in all the time. In Leviticus, in Numbers, it, all the children of Israel would line up at their tents, watch as Moses walked into the temple, and the Shekinah would come down, and Moses would talk to them face to face. You ever notice the contradiction there? What's that all about? Well, because they have different roles to play. Moses represents Jesus Christ prior to his incarnation. The Lamb represents Jesus Christ during his incarnation. Aaron represents Jesus Christ after his ascension and resurrection. And so prior to the incarnation, was Jesus going into the Father and talking with him regularly about the plan, the upcoming events, his incarnation, the whole plan of salvation, strategizing, working together? Were they constantly? So there's no big deal that Moses is going into talking to God. He's representing Christ's work prior to the incarnation. The Lamb represents Christ during the incarnation, and Aaron, our high priest, after the incarnation. So we see when we understand that, that each one had a role to play and understanding the greater message of the whole great controversy being acted out, that we can put these pieces together. Somebody read the bottom green section. In what way are we called 
regardless of this in the church, to make known to others what I have revealed to you. What has God revealed to you? How can you better share that with others? And I just want to open the class. What has God revealed to you? And, and do you have a, a, a message that you believe that, that God would like you to share to others? How can we do that? By studying the Bible. Well, just think about that. What message do we have? And how can we better share that message? Let's go to Monday's lesson. Somebody read Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, the the Bible verse right there at the top. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. John thirteen, prior to his crucifixion, also all power is given. At the Last Supper, he says, All power is given unto me. And he gets up, wraps a cloth around his waist, and goes and washes dirty feet. So what power do you think Jesus was referring to here? What's he talking about? Power of life and death. Power of life and death. All the divine attributes. The power to create, the power to, to overthrow, the power to forgive sins, the power of, I mean, all the attributes of the divine God. God Christ had all power. Is that, is that what we're talking about here? The power to save himself. The, ah, did he have the power to stop brutal men from hurting him if he wanted to? Was that power given to him? Could have. Would he have the power to pull himself down off the cross and wipe out the evil men of earth if he wanted to? Did he have the power to crush Satan and destroy him if he wanted to? Was that power given to him? Do you know there are some that teach that Christ did not have that power? There are some that teach that Christ was like the thieves on the cross. He had God's character, which was different than the thieves on the cross. But as far as access to divine power and might, he didn't have an option. He couldn't stop it if he wanted to. I reject that view. I think all power was given to Christ. And what difference does it make to us to recognize that Christ had all power at his disposal? Does it make a difference to see Christ going through everything he went through with all power at his disposal versus going through everything he went through without all power at his disposal? Does it make a difference in what we learn? Yes. What, what difference does it make? That he can be trusted with it. With? That he can be trusted with the power. What was one of the allegations that started the whole disaffection in the universe to start with? God can't be trusted. God can't be trusted. God can't be trusted with power. Well, how will we ever learn if God can be trusted with power if Christ didn't have all power at his disposal? But having all power at his disposal, do we learn something about how God wields power? Yes. When the... uh Jews made that comment, you saved others, but you yourself you can't save. They didn't know that they actually were making a prediction. Why is that true? Why is it he could save others, but he couldn't save himself? Anybody have thoughts on that? He, he was not doing things selfishly for himself. He was thinking of others and doing it for others. That's true. He wasn't doing things selfishly. He was doing things for others. So why is that the reason... He could save others, but he couldn't save himself. What's the connection? He couldn't save himself, or he wouldn't. And he couldn't save himself and save others. He, he wouldn't have... He couldn't do both. He couldn't save himself and save others. It's either save others or save himself. Why? Because he, if he had saved himself, he would have been uh, admitting that Satan was right and he was wrong. Between selfish and doing that and saving himself. Between love and... and it's way in the back. If he had saved himself, wouldn't that have negated John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believes in him should not perish. So, negates it in what way? 
What does John 3.16 say? What's the prediction or the claim or the prophecy of John 3.16? That God is? That the Father loves us so much that he will rescue us, that he will save us. Love is an outward, inward. Uh, so love, love, 1 Corinthians 13, love is not self-seeking. God is love. God so loved the word he gave. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. So we have these con- contradicting principles here. The principle of God's character of giving, outward moving love, beneficence, self-sacrifice. Uh, Satan's principle of look at me, uh, survival of the fittest, self-centeredness. If, if Christ chooses to exercise his power and save himself, does he make that choice with his divine attributes, or would he have made that choice with his human brain and human mind? Human. The human mind. Had to be. Yeah, and when he was tempted in Gethsemane, did he experience temptation to act in self-interest, to protect himself, to save himself? Yes. Yeah. You know, the anguish. Was that temptation coming through his human nature or his divine nature? Human nature. Human nature. Okay? So when Christ chose to give himself in love, no one can take my life, I will give it freely. Was he making that choice with his divine nature, or was that his human nature making the choice to give his life? Human. Well, not so many answers on that one. Divine choice. It had to be human. He couldn't have passed that healing along to us. So, so was the temptation coming through his human nature then was it his human nature that said no through the indwelling of his Father's Spirit? It wasn't, you know, in other words, he wasn't tapping into divine personal prerogatives. It wasn't his, his own divinity that stood up and said no. It was, well, it says in Hebrews 4, 15, he was tempted for every, in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 5, 8, it says that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who. Now, the divine nature, did it need to be made perfect? No. Did the human nature need to be made perfect? Yes. So once he was made perfect, he became the source of How did his human nature, it says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man when he was, which part of him was growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man? His divine nature was growing or his human nature was growing? Human nature. Okay. Do we notice that Christ is doing something through his journey on earth? What is he doing? He's developing something. Perfect character. He is restoring perfectly into the species known as human the law character of God. The nature of God is being rewritten into the human species by the journey of Jesus Christ. Because the human species was now infected with what? Sin. Sin, known as? Selfishness, survival of the fittest, me first, watch out for number one, fear, insecurity, doubt. This is the human species. And what's the, what's the, the new covenant? What's, what's the promise of the new covenant? Is Christ is going to do something to us. New heart and right spirit. Another way of saying that in Hebrews is he's going to write his law in our hearts. hearts. Which law is that? Law of love. How did did Christ in his journey actually, moment by moment, choice by choice, choose to love others? Yes. Even though he's tempted to act in self-interest. Did he do that? Was, he, was Christ tempted to act in self-interest? Yes. But did he choose to always say no? So even though he's tempted like us, he was yet without sin. Yeah, so love overcame. So do we see that Christ has all power 
And how did Christ wield his power? With love. Yes, did he use power to dominate? Did he use power to force? Now let's look back through history too. When Lucifer started his rebellion in heaven, did the Godhead have all power? Did they use the power to, to stand up and say, look, here's the truth. Lucifer's telling a lie. We are loving, we're gracious, we're kind. Make up your mind. Get in line. No, he didn't. Because we have all power. He demonstrated rather than... Did he use power to coerce, to force knees to bow? What does it say that God let Lucifer have the freedom to wield all his lies throughout the universe? Doesn't that show something about how God uses power? It's incredible. It really is incredible. How about when Christ was on the cross, all power at his disposal, what does it say that he would rather let human beings, his creatures, kill him than use his power to stop them? You see how much freedom you have with God. That's the freedom that we have for eternity. And any construct that comes along and says, well, we have freedom to a point, but at some point God's going to use his power to inflict upon you punishment and make you pay for not doing what he says. Think that through in your marriage relationship. Well, my husband leaves me free, or my wife leaves me free, as long as I don't spend more than $500 a month. But if I go over $500 a month, then the belt comes out and I get beaten. But I'm free to do whatever I want. Are you really free? No. As long as there's this, this, this idea that at the end he'll, he'll somehow bring out the whip and, and get you, we're not free. Yes? I often wonder if our power comes through God and our relationship with God, how is it that Satan has so much power? Uh, what is the power of Satan? What is Satan's power? He says in, in Hebrews chapter 2.14, it says that Christ... Um, took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. The devil holds the power of death. What is that power? John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, who now ascend. So according to John 3, what, what, is, what equals eternal life? Knowing God. Knowing God. Satan has the power of death. So what's the power that Satan has? If eternal life is knowing God, then eternal de death is not knowing. not knowing God. So Satan's power is the power of lies that he tells. He is the father of lies. And we believe the lies, the circle of love and trust gets broken. And we're severed from the source of life. That's his power. So what is it that sets us free? You will know the truth, John 8, 32, and the truth will set you free. Truth about what? About God. The truth about God. And that, that, that's... So, uh, talking about the power stuff, we're going to move on because I want to get on to some other things in the lesson. But it says in Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. How does the Spirit work? Through love. Spirit of truth and love. It's the truth presented in love, leaving people free, because the truth sets free from lies. And then it says in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation. How, how is the, the, the gospel, the power of God? What is the gospel? The truth, which destroys... Lies. The lie. Satan's power is the lie. So the gospel is the power of God, which destroys lies with the truth. Setting our minds free. You see, we have this idea it's all about physical might and physical power. Let me tell you, it is a lot easier for God to take dirt 
and make a living creature from scratch than it is to take a sinner and make him holy. Does that make sense to you all? Because to make a sinner holy requires your cooperation. It doesn't require your cooperation for him to take dirt and make a being from scratch. But once we are free, sentient individuals, we can't be healed, cleansed, restored, renewed by a divine fiat, an act solely on the part of God himself. Because that would only make a robot. It requires our willing cooperation. It requires us to reason. Come, let us reason together. To think through the truth. To weigh out the issues. To choose to hold to that which is true. And then in trust, open the heart. And then there's a regenerating supernatural process where the Holy Spirit recreates us in Christ's likeness. So what power does God win the war with Satan? Is the power that wins the war the power of physical might? No. The battle is not over who's strongest. It was never. Satan never stood up in heaven and said, hey, I'm physically stronger than God and I can prove it. It was never over that. It was over, can you trust the one with the power? Read the bottom two paragraphs there for us, please, Monday. Bottom two paragraphs. Ultimate authority belongs to Christ as our creator and redeemer. He is at once the final court of appeal and the absolute norm by which each life is to be judged. Divine authority finds its focus and finality in him. The Gospels therefore declare that his teaching causes astonishment because he taught as one having a fee authority. Throughout the Gospels we find Christ's more than human authority. He forgave sins, drove out devils, and claimed the right to judge men's hearts and give eternal life. Yet, the authority that Christ exercised within his earthly commission was granted to him by the Father. Whatever he did, including all the miracles he performed, always was done in independence on and in cooperation with his Father. At the same time, he had absolute authority. Therefore, he could delegate authority to his disciples and will in the end judge all people. That's what I wanted to hear. Let's judge all people in the end. Let's think about judgment for a When you think of judgment, what comes to mind? Court. court. A court with a judge, an accused, a def- somebody, somebody, who's being, uh, uh, somebody who's accused, somebody who's, who's being prosecuted, somebody who's being defended. Does that come to mind when you think of judgment? Mm-hmm. All right, let me ask you this. If someone is accused of murder, what is the purpose of judgment? To find out if it's true or not. To determine guilt or innocence. And then, if guilty, meet out the proper punishment. Okay, if someone is accused of embezzlement, what is the purpose of judgment? If someone is accused of child abuse, what is the purpose of judgment? If they're accused of child abuse, what's the purpose of judgment? Find out if they're guilty or not. If someone with AIDS is accused of not taking their antiviral medications, if someone with AIDS is accused, they're not taking their antiviral medications, what is the purpose of judgment? There is no purpose in that. Hmm. If someone with cancer is accused of refusing chemotherapy, what is the purpose of judgment? No purpose. If someone jumps out of an airplane and is accused of not having a parachute, what is the purpose of judgment? Is there a need for judgment in the first three scenarios? Yes. Is there a need for judgment in the last three? Do we see God's law as an imposed or natural law? Natural. Do we? When we speak of judgment, do we see God's law as imposed or natural? But is God's law imposed or natural? You see, we have some distortions in our thinking when it comes to judgment. 
How about if you don't know anything about cancer at all? And you saw two people sick with cancer, but you really don't know or understand anything about what's going on with them. You just know they're sick. And they both go to the doctor. Both offered a treatment that will cure them. One of them takes the treatment and gets well. One of them refuses the treatment and doesn't. Now, you don't know anything about cancer. You just know these people were sick. They went to the doctor. One lived. One died. Would there, what would be the need in that situation for judgment? Or back to the airplane scenario. Two people jump out of the plane. One floats down with a parachute and one doesn't. How do we know whether the pilot offered both the parachute? What would be the purpose for judgment? Who's being judged in those situations? The doctor. The pilot. Not the people. Hmm. So let's look at some scripture. The lesson tells us to read John 5, 27. I'm going to start back just a little farther and start with verse 22 and read through. It says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and as he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now, that's John 5, 22, 27. Here's John 8, 15 and 16. You judge by human, this is Jesus speaking. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge... My decisions are right, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. And then Jesus speaking again in John chapter 12, 47 and 48. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very word which I spoke will condemn him in the last day. What is it that's going to be his judge? The truth. The truth. The reality. Out of his mouth. The reality. And then Matthew 22, 33 through 37, Jesus speaking again. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up him in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What is the message of these texts? That God has an arbitrary law that he imposed that you better keep, and, if, and, and we're all accused of breaking it by the devil, and one day we're going to set up before the tribunal of God, and there's going to be a judge who determines which one of us has kept the law or have accepted the blood payment in our behalf to pay the penalty for breaking the law, and which one of us hasn't? Is that, is that what the judgment is? Or is the judgment God as a natural law that life is based to operate upon, the law of love? Those who have accepted Jesus Christ have opened the heart and trust. The Holy Spirit has come in. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is put in. The, the, the heart has been circumcised. The law has been written in the heart and mind. We are now in harmony with the principles of life. We can, as it says in John, when he comes, we shall see him face to face, for we shall no, no. be like him. 
We'll be like Him. How do we get to be like Him? By the transforming work of the Spirit when we've been won back to trust through the truth. Now, what judges us then? Your words, which means your condition. Because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, it said. So when you speak the words, you're showing the condition of your heart. So he's saying, by your heart, your heart condition will determine where you end up in the end. It will be self-evident. So the question is, does God have to hold a court scene in order for God to determine who's innocent and guilty? No. Does God need that? No. Does God have to hold a court scene for the rest of the universe to determine innocence and guilt? Yes. The question is, though, who are the intelligences of heaven judging? God. Who is the one the court scene is designed to judge? Well, I'll let you read Romans chapter 3, verse 4. King James Version. Good translation. Here we go. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man be a liar, as it is written, that thou might be justified in thy sayings and might overcome when thou art judged. Wait a minute. That God might overcome when he is judged? That's what the word says. Who was the original being in the universe accused of being untrustworthy? The first being in the entire universe accused of being untrustworthy. Who was that? God. God. God has always been the one who's been on trial, falsely accused. And we read in Daniel 19 through 22. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, most terrifying, with its iron teeth, bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the one horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and mouth to speak boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and, according to the NIV, pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. You see, this is how we've predicted, we like the NIV on this, on this text because we've traditionally taught that Little Horn Power was waging war against the saints of God until one day God went to his, the Ancient of Days took his throne, Christ went through that door that, w- that was open and no one could close, and in there the judgment seat was set and the books were open and God began declaring judgment in our favor in heaven and, and thus we got freedom. I'll read it to you, the last couple of verses out of the American Standard Version. I beheld the same horn make war against the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Judgment was given to the saints, until the time came that we had the ability to discern the right from the wrong, until the time we had the ability to make the right judgment. The, the little horn power, if you look at uh, this little horn power, Paul talks about it in Thessalonians when it says, don't let anyone tell you that Christ is coming, the second coming has come. It's not going to come until the, little, the man of sin arises, that perverse man who opposes everything that is, is holy and sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple was that? After the ascension of Christ, did, did this little horn power, this, little, this man of sin, did he go into heaven and throw Christ off his heavenly throne and sit down up there in heaven? Is that what happened? No. So what temple is this? Our hearts. Know ye not that ye are a temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? This is the temple that this little horn power set himself up in. 
How did the little horn power set himself up in, in the temple of God, in the spirit temple? Lies about God. Lies about God. And he was waging war. What kind of war is this? For, no, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. The war is over the truth about God. So this little horn power wages war by telling lies about God. It gets in our head and he sets himself up in our heads proclaiming himself to be God because we believe all these distorted images about God and he's waging war and he's trampling us down until the day comes that we are given judgment. We are given the ability to judge rightly the truth about God. And then we possess the kingdom. The kingdom of God is, according to Jesus, where? Within you. And we can only possess the kingdom when we come back to the truth about God. So why does God have to have a court scene? Why would it be necessary? Is there necessary in the end for there to be a court scene in heaven for any intelligent beings in this universe to figure out who's saved and who's lost? This is what's commonly taught. I'm going to suggest to you it is not needed. Any more than there's needed to be a court scene to, to figure out in the end who's been taking their chemotherapy and who's, been, who's not been. Who's been taking their antiviral medications for HIV and who has not been. Do we need a court scene to figure that out or we just need to watch? We want to be self-evident. That's all we need to see. Yes, but won't, won't those who are saved have family members who they would swear should be standing on the walls of the holy city? Yes. and We will, we will need evidence. And where does that evidence come from? From a book that we read? Books can be doctored. Can't books be doctored? Yes. Yes. So we get the evidence from the book? Or, if you've read... The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven at the end of the thousand years. The wicked of all ages, those on the outside, those loved ones, hopefully we won't have any there, but if they're there, they'll be on the outside. Now, first off, what are the walls of the new Jerusalem constructed out of? They're transparent. Did you all know the walls of the new Jerusalem are transparent? You can see right through them. And when the new Jerusalem comes down, the wicked dead are raised, what are the position of the gates? Open. The gates are open, not closed. You have a loved one on the outside. Johnny, it's awesome in here. Come on in. It's open. What keeps them out? The lie. The lie. You see, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But it says in Revelation that when Christ comes, every eye will see him, even those who... pierced him. And Jesus said at his trial to the men crucifying, you will see the Son of Man coming sitting at the right hand of power. Now, wait a second. John 3, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Those who pierced him and those that put him on trial are going to see him coming at the right hand of power. Yes or no? Yes. So how do we reconcile these? They see the power, but they don't see the kingdom because the kingdom of God is not about physical power. It's about character of love. And they believe the lies of Satan about God. So they see the power... And they still distrust him. He's a power monger. He's an abuser. He doesn't like us. He's going to hurt us. We hate him. We don't trust him. We're not going in there. Yeah, they see the physical representation of the kingdom, but they still can't see the kingdom because their minds are filled with the lies that holds them captive. When they bow the knee before they're destroyed, do they finally see that power? Really see the power? Character of God? Or they still don't see it. They still don't see the truth. I think they see it. They see the wrongness 
the confession that comes at the end, that he was right in all his ways and, and that we were wrong, is forced out of a guilty conscience, so to speak, that the truth can no longer be denied. You don't much think they finally see the justice of God and his kingdom. They have to admit to it. They don't like it. But they truly see God's love and his character. I think they see that they... They cannot accept of themselves, but they see it. And you say, holy, just, and true are thy ways, Lord Almighty. Yes, they do. They do acknowledge that. But I don't think there is true heart appreciation for the meaning of what that means. Satan acknowledges it. I don't think there's appreciation. They see it, but they cannot surrender to it. And they also, I don't think, can truly appreciate it or connect with it. It would be like seeing an ocean of water and understanding it's wet, but never been in water in your life. You can, you can, you can see it. You admit it, but you don't know it. So I think there's an awareness that comes. I'm going to give you that. But I don't think they know it. Not in that intimacy of life eternal is knowing God. I don't think they know him. They know it, but they can't surrender to it. Is it a possibility that before their mind will be their life history? Oh, yes. Let's get to that. We're jumping off right in the middle of our transition and thoughts here, but you guys are bringing up great stuff. Okay, so why did Jesus not come 2,000 years ago at his incarnation with the full glory that he shares with his Father in heaven? Why did he not come that way? They couldn't have taken What would have happened if Jesus would have appeared on earth in that glory? Who would have been destroyed, though? Just the wicked? Everybody. His disciples. So, so think that's true. Wait, wait a minute. Would that mean that if he would have come in that glory and the disciples would have been destroyed, that God was angry and vengeful and seeking to hurt, that he wanted to do harm? Or is it something inherently in the condition that can't survive in God's unveiled glory unhealed? See, this is not imposed. Okay, Second Thessalonians 2.8 says, The wicked are destroyed by the brightness of Christ's coming when he comes again. Would that have happened 2,000 years ago if he had just appeared in his fullness to all of us? Yes. Okay. When Moses came down off the mountain, his face is radiating a, a very, very, you know, minuscule amount of this glory. It just, I mean, it has to be a small amount compared to what you're getting straight from the Father, right? From the source. But it's enough that the children of Israel, when he comes to approach them, what do they do? Ask them to this is awesome. We want to, we want to spend time in your presence, Moses. Veil your face. Veil your face. We can't handle it. It's too intense. Uh, because the, the flames are too hot. It was like almost boiling point. It was scorching. And Moses had third degree burns on his face. And his beard was all scarred off, right? No. This was not a heat. This was not physical combustion fire. This was light of truth and love shining from Moses, from the, reflecting from the source of truth and love. And those who are solidified in, in selfishness and lies, it, it, it's, it's agonizing to come to the truth. This is out of a book called Thoughts of Mount of Blessings, page 26, and it says, When Christ shall come in his glory, the wicked cannot endure to behold him. The light of his presence, which is life to those who love him, is death to the ungodly. If this is the condition of things, when Christ comes, is there a need for an external judgment to decide who can stand in his presence and who can't? Or is it an automatic Either you can or you can't by your condition. You've either been saved and healed and restored to oneness, so you love his presence, or you run and hide begging for the mountains to fall on you, to hide you from his presence. What determines where we go? An external judgment by the judge or the condition of our heart? Condition of our heart. What's the difference between Satan and us in that, like in Job, it says that he was able to, um, he went to the sons of God, went to God and were 
talking and one of them was described as being Satan and then he went down to for those who have any other questions, he says, why could Satan in the book of Job enter God's presence in the light of his glory and not be consumed by that, but humankind can't? Um, I don't know that we have all the answers to that, but we do know that humans, they're a different being than angels are. Angels are made out of something different, I, I assume. I don't know that they're made out of dirt of this earth. Um, we're made out of dirt of this earth. I'm going to suggest it has something to do with that. My personal theory, and it's only theoretical, there's no biblical or scriptural or inspired, so don't ask me for a reference for this, but just as God took dirt and made us, and that's what we're made out, if you understand the physiology of what we're made out of, we're made out of dirt. I, I, my personal theory is that angels are made out of photons. It's a different form of matter. It's, it's, it's the matter that sunbeams are made out of. And if God can make us out of dirt, I don't see why he could make them out of photons. It's a theory. But why they can live in his presence, I think it has to do something with their constitutional differences. Is the thing that did not destroy them the question you're asking the same thing that will destroy them at the end? I think it will destroy them in the end. I do. And there could have been a veiling that God allowed uh, over Satan's mind to shield him to allow him to come there to continue the controversy. So God could have also had Satan on some type of an artificial life support mechanism, put him in a, in a, in a spiritual spacesuit to come into heaven so that, uh, that he could survive there. I mean, that's a real possibility, too. We're not given those details. Okay? A couple more big points before we close this class. Wednesday's lesson. The first paragraph, it talks about the sword of the Spirit. It says, the word of God is piercing even the division of soul and, and spirit, the joint and marrow, and is the discerner of the th- of thoughts and intents of the heart. Notice that. The word of God, the thoughts and intents of the heart, is where this gets to. And with that in mind, um, Isaiah 26. So, why, so how is the word of God described there as a what? Sharp as a? Two-edged sword. So Isaiah 21, excuse, 26, 21 and 2, it says, See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose... The blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword. Out of context, that sounds quite frightening, doesn't it? Now, Revelation 19 through 21. It says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and all their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Who's the rider on the horse? Jesus. Jesus. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fire, fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. Wait a minute. What kind of sword is this? Sword of truth. What kind, do you see Jesus coming with a piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? No. What is it that comes out of the mouth? Words. words. And out of the mouth of Jesus, what kind of words come? Truth. 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 And the truth is sharper than a double-edged sword. To dividing the soul and spirit. They are slain by the words of truth. You see, there's a reality in this universe. And we need to get our minds around it here and now. You can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. If you deal with it now, right here, today, on this planet, you deal with it under the umbrella of God's grace, and the truth will bring conviction, it will bring brokenness, it will bring us back to trust, it will open the heart, and then the Holy Spirit comes in, healing, regenerating, recreating, transforming for eternal salvation. But if we reject the truth here and now, then one day we still come face to face with the truth. But then the truth hits a mind that is incapable of change, a mind that is so subtle and the lie it can't be reshaped. 
and it just cuts through it. And we have actually one example of that, in my opinion, from the Scriptures about the sword of truth bringing life to an end. And we can read about it in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, told, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied, notice the lie, we're not holding to the truth, lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. But when Ananias heard this, God struck him down. Is that what it says? He fell down and died. What was done to Ananias? He was confronted with truth. Truth. All at once. All at once. And he died. Unveiled truth. If Jesus would have come in his unveiled glory, he would have come with unveiled truth. And those of us who are steeped in lies cannot handle the unveiled truth. Think about your own life experience when you've done something wrong, before you've repented, before you've reconciled with God, before you've been healing, healed by the Holy Spirit. If someone tries to confront you with the truth, what's that like? Do you, do you go toward it or do you run from it? Yes. The unveiled truth is painful. Unless we experience that truth mingled with the grace and love of God in the healing allotments that Christ knows we can handle. And our goal is to come to him and say, Lord, we love you, we trust you, bring the truth home in the amounts that I need to transform and heal me back into your nature and character. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths to meet us. Our minds are so darkened. We ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that you will enlighten our minds with truth and the amounts that we need that will free us from the lies. Let us see you more clearly and entrust, pour out your Spirit to heal, regenerate, recreate us, and let us be lights of truth to bring others back to you, we pray in your holy name. Amen.